0: Hello. Welcome to At The Source, a podcast full of food stories. I'm your host, all-round greedy guts and food blogger, Alex Ryder. I cannot believe that we've made it to the end of 2020, and this is the final episode that you'll hear from me this year. It's been a roller coaster of a year with ups and downs, not only due to the pandemic and all sorts of things going on for many people, but also it was the year that I lost my co-host, Karis, earlier... Um, back at the start of the year and also the year that I really pondered whether or not I was even going to keep this podcast going I ended up taking a four month break and in that time realised that actually I really missed it I missed sitting on the floor in my spare room surrounded by bubble wrap chatting to whoever is out there listening I missed having conversations with really interesting people from all over the food and drink industry so uh, late summer I, I picked up my earphones and I got back on with it and I'm so glad I did I released a total of 20 episodes this year and have had so many listens, so many positive comments and so much great feedback that 2021 is going to be the year of this podcast. I can just feel it. Talking of which, I have set up a Patreon account, which means that if you'd like to become a subscriber for the podcast, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash at the source and by making a small donation per month I think I've set it at something like two quid which is less than the price of a fancy coffee you'll get extra episodes behind the scenes stuff and exclusive giveaways and opportunities to ask questions to guests ahead of time so if you fancy doing that and supporting me on this journey which is squished in around my full-time job a busy life six chickens two cats and everything else that I do um, I would absolutely love that and you will become a very important important subscriber to me anyway let's get on with today's episode some of you may remember that last year I sat down to chat with fermentation expert Sandor Katz and it sparked a huge amount of interest with you my listeners This area of food preparation is a bit mysterious, a bit magical, and a little bit scary. Although I know many of us are now way more familiar with fermented foods than we ever used to be. I know, for example, that people are making their own sauerkraut, kombucha, and kimchi, myself included. So when I had the opportunity to delve into the world of fermentation once again, only this time with a Japanese twist, I jumped at the chance. So today's guests are calling all the way from the USA. Jeremy Umansky and Rich Shi are co-authors of Koji Alchemy, a book devoted to the processes, concepts and recipes for fermenting and culturing foods with koji, the microbe behind the well-known umami flavours of soy sauce, miso, mirin and many other Japanese ingredients. Between them, they have a huge amount of experience with koji and their book, which was released in May this year, is already heaped with praise so originally i was going to say let's see how much we can fit into 45 minutes but actually this is a beast of an episode coming in at just over an hour so sit down make yourself comfy and buckle up it's been a really fun fun ride Welcome both. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. No problem. So so where are you both? Where are you calling in from? So um,
1: I actually live in a city just north of Boston, Massachusetts.
0: And you're rich. <laughs> and this is Jeremy
2: here. I'm in uh, Cleveland, Ohio.
0: cool I think that that was um, that was a pretty smooth start so I guess the beauty of recording remotely is that I can kind of broaden my reach Um, and it's quite exciting for me because although I've had American guests on my show before it's always been kind of face-to-face at events or um, food conferences in the UK so this is quite exciting for me
2: as it is for us
0: of course (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, okay, uh, where do we start? Maybe tell me a little bit about each of you, a bit about your background. Are you professional fermentationers, if that's a word? Um, Rich, do you want to go first?
1: Sure, of course. Um, so, yeah, as, as you said, um, my name is Rich Shee. And uh, in terms of what I do for a living, for my day job, I'm a mechanical engineer for a space telescope company. So the culinary adventures that I'm on aren't um, specific to what I do uh, for a living, although at some point I would like them to be. Um, And in general, I've just been sort of this um, cook uh, over time who's been very interested in how to make delicious food and koji and fermentation in general just became one of those things that was introduced to me early on. As a child, my my parents are Taiwanese. Um, I'm first generation and I've always experienced, you know, pickles and soy sauce and miso and, you know, all these uh, wonderful ferments that have lots of depth. And I got to, you know, just sort of understand those as a child and as I grew up, some of those things were in my pantry, like ketchup and mustard.
0: Amazing. I can't believe how different your job is to, to um, fermentation.
1: Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I see it as, you know, being an engineer, it's, it's an applied science. And I also see cooking as it, so that falls into the same category. At, at first, I had this sort of struggle whether or not I had to choose between the two in terms of my sort of pursuit for a career. But um, with the understanding that it applies across, across purposely and uses my brain in, in the same exact way. Uh, but with slight tweaks, it, it just became one of those things was, mm. that was sort of natural instead of, oh, being labeled as a specific function. Um, all, all, the, all the things I do are engineering. So whether it's, you know, flavor engineering or cooking uh, engineering or, or, or even being at work and doing mechanical engineering, I, I see it all as one thing. and. And it's it's been sort of this continual journey in terms of developing a a sort of cohesive approach of how I feel about where I'm going in my life. So in terms of. Yeah. And in terms of fermentation, you know, it's just a matter of being able to understand very basic methodology to apply it across purpose. And I think that's one of the things in terms of understanding flavors and textures of my childhood being. Um, you know, experiencing things from basically, you know, halfway around the world from my parents' childhood to here and the American context and such a hybrid of experiences. I sort of married all that together and decided that I wanted to play around a little bit. And <clears throat> in terms of trying things, I just wasn't afraid of just mixing and matching because through my experiences of eating adventurously. I could apply anything to everything else due to the, the experiences I've had.
0: Cool. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? That kind of science and engineering, I think, especially with something like fermentation, where you do need to be quite precise in what you're doing um, in order to, for the results to come out correctly. And so, Jeremy, what about you? Are you a professional fermentationer? I think I've made that word up. I'm fairly sure I've
2: made that word up. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like it. It's it's probably going to stick a bit. Um, yeah, I, I guess you could say I am. Um, so I grew up uh, here in the Midwest in the United States, and my grandmother was a kosher caterer. So that was my kind of earliest introduction to food. I started working for her at a very young age uh, in my early teens. And, uh, you know, from there, I kind of fell in love with um, I guess like traditional Jewish cuisine and Eastern European cuisines. And through that too, I, I ended up going to culinary school. I'm a trained chef. Um, worked uh, kind of across the United States and in various places, spent some time in, in Italy and a very little bit of time in Spain and fell in love with fermentation. Um, and not just fermentation uh, itself, but um, all types of food preservation. So the making of different styles of charcuterie, making preserved vegetables, not necessarily ones that are always pickled, um, and uh, the brewing of vinegar and alcohol and that sort of thing, bread making, uh, cheese making. So these were things that... um, as a professional, I really focused on. And I ended up focusing uh, uh, more on those things than I did, per se, uh, cooking on a line in a restaurant. And eventually got to the point where I was able to uh, open up my own uh, restaurant. It's a Eastern European delicatessen or Jewish delicatessen here in Cleveland. And our huge focus is these foods that are produced through different styles of preservation.
0: Mm, I'd love to visit. That sounds great. I
2: will gladly feed
0: you. I'm on my way. Give me a week, maybe a bit longer, I think, with this lockdown. But no, I personally love anything kind of pickled, anything uh, quite punchy flavors so um yeah that's right on my street so how did you two meet was it through your love of fermentation oh yeah
2: I, it definitely was you know thankfully as uh, far away as we are um you know the the internet brings people together in various ways, some some fantastic ways, others not so fantastic, and we like to look at ourselves as a as a result of uh, one of the fantastic ways. and And we met via social media. Um, we were both working um, with this wonderful microorganism called koji, and we were both doing things that at the time uh, for each one of us we we didn't realize the ramification that. The experiments and the projects we were undertaking were, were presenting to people. But um, we we essentially we linked up through our love of working with fermentation and specifically with this koji mold, and uh, just hit the ground running. It was really reaffirmed too because a reporter here in the U.S. who had done a story about Rich and his cookie dough misos and his smoked misos that he was making uh, for the Boston Globe had come to Cleveland to interview me for another publication and she really hammered home, um, how much Rich and I should really connect. We, we had been communicating prior to that, but, um, after Cynthia's visit, um, we really just, our friendship was just immediately solidified.
0: Oh, I can imagine you kind of eyeing up each other's tweets. Oh, he's doing that. I should try that. And Yeah, it sounds like a a match made in heaven, I think. And yeah, social media is amazing. I mean, I've met so many people in the food world through just kind of, well, I guess, perving on their Instagram for want of, for want of a better word. So, yeah.
1: (laughs) We, we, we perv so much, (laughs) especially on each other. (laughs) Yeah. I I think what's most magnificent about the whole interaction is that, um, you can share exactly what you're doing and sort of have these ideas that are exchanged almost real time that people will just pop in and be interested in what you're doing and, and and say, hey, have you tried this or, hey, how did you do that? And I think that's one of the more powerful things about what we're doing on social media in terms of sharing and understanding is that we can all sort of build our experiences together and, and help each
2: other out. To expound on that a little bit, too, is, you know, if you look at the traditional ways that a chef or a culinarian or a fer- fermentationer um, kind of develop something, a lot of times the work is solitary and then it kind of expounds to like a greater kitchen or culinary staff. Um, and then, you know, it goes through, various rigors and is eventually ready to put on somebody's plate or packed up and sent home with them. And now with social media playing into a lot of these things, uh, two people at opposite ends of the world can be simultaneously working on the same thing and sharing instant feedback, Mm. which is fantastic because two individuals have different cultural lenses that they view the food they're producing through so each one is adding these wonderful little bits of cultural identity and individualism to something that really just comes together in such a fantastic way
0: in a nutshell what is koji
1: sure um so koji um in a very specific context is a is the mold that's called aspergillus or or a you know filamentous mold in that same category that is grown on um, a starch medium such that over the course of a couple of days you are able to yield enzymes that allow you to convert proteins and starches into amino acids and sugars to allow you to um, create you know very bioavailable foods and delicious foods as well as alcohol and sugar in the cases of making sake or mirin and It's just sort of this catalyst for nutrition and fermentation. And most simply, it's just something that we are leveraging a microbe to create things that are amazingly wonderful for us and can be used in any context.
0: So what does it actually look like? Does it look like a mold or how, how would I know that I've, I've got some Koji ready to harvest?
2: Koji is stunning and it's very, uh, unique amongst all the molds out there. I mean, we're all familiar with the leftovers we forgot in the fridge or, you know, the bread that may have been left in a bag on the counter and it's got mold on it, or even, you know, the funk that sometimes grows in some of our bathroom bathrooms. Um, and while on some levels, It does kind of look like these other molds. On other levels, it's the opposite end of the spectrum. Just visually, as it's growing, before it goes to its spore, and its spore is the seed which you use to propagate the next generation. Uh, Before it goes to spore, when it's growing on rice, it looks like, if you can imagine... Um, a picture of a beautiful, partly sunny day with bright blue skies and those big, fluffy white clouds there. That, that cloud is what Koji looks like. <laughs> it looks fluffy. And it's, it's almost, uh, if you look at it when it's growing, because it has all these little projections, microscopic projections all over, your eyes almost have trouble focusing on it. Uh, on a specific spot because there's so much fine texture to it. Um, but it's, it's fluffy, it's inviting. I mean, you look at it and you like, you want to touch it much like, um, I don't know if you've ever been around sheep before, but they're so fluffy and big with all that wool that they look like they're ripe for a hug or a, a good petting. And Koji has very, very similar draw to it. Um, on top of that, the aroma of koji of this mold compared to other ones is nothing short of centrally intoxicating. When you pick up a piece of charcuterie from the butcher and it has the white bloom mold on there, or around uh, a round of brie or camembert, and you smell those, the mold on them does not smell all too inviting. Uh, you get aromas of wet basement or. D- damp cellar or wet animal for that matter, hay and barnyard. But with koji, its aroma is actually that of flowers and tropical fruits. Some people say chestnuts or green apple, pineapple or mango. Uh, honeysuckle is another common aroma people say they pick up. And add just a slight like chestnutty or mushroom earthiness to it. Very, very faint. And that's the aroma. So uh, aside from being visually inviting and you just kind of wanting to pet it or touch it, um, it's, it's aroma draws you in in a way that you're like, wait, everything I know about molds is wrong. This is not happening. And it is actually inviting us to, to, Take it and work with it
1: and consume it.
0: So, how does koji differ to the cultures that are used in things like kimchi and sauerkraut?
1: If we think about it as a specific starter, that is sort of you know, in traditional times, um, it was sort of taking taken out of you know your environment to be able to create a condition to have the mold grow. Um, the specific the specific the specific environments that you have to create to make it happen aren't as easy as, you know, growing some sourdough or doing a lacto ferment where you can safely, you know, gather these microbes and create a condition that will create uh, such a product that is understood and uh, known. Whereas Koji, it's a little bit harder to do that. So the most the easiest way of being able to grow it is through you know, getting these spores that have been specifically grown for these purposes. And also, you know, if you think about seed breeding for, you know, making a vegetable delicious or travel well, it's in that same context of a seed. So that's the context is that you actually need a spore. You're, you know, if you think about it as a plant seed to create this condition, to grow these enzymes that we talked about in terms of, you know, basically growing the mold on some starch. And that becomes sort of your, what you would like to call as your fermentation starter. And the key behind that fermentation starter are the enzymes, primarily, uh, pr- you know, protease enzymes and amylase en- enzymes. So those are the things that you can use to convert your foods into these delicious things that we talk about, you know, creating pro, you know, proteins into amino acids and starches into sugars. So that's the context in terms of how you use koji and how it grows is that you need a spore to start the condition to create this starter to cascade into delicious things that you want to make. So for example, if you're talking about being able to create a sort of umami from, you know, say, you know, just in general soybeans, that's how you create the umami by taking soybeans and you have sort of a koji made starch, you add it to some, cooked soybeans and you mash them up together with a little bit of salt and that's pretty much miso and if you want to think about it in the context of a soy sauce it's just that you take soybeans a little bit of toasted cracked wheat um, that you grow the koji on then you add salt water and then you let that ferment and that becomes your ultimately becomes your soy sauce. So the only difference between the two is just the the amount of liquid.
2: Yeah, I think it's, it's important for um, listeners to understand also, too, that when you compare koji to something like kimchi or sauerkraut, which are they call them lacto ferments, these are. Uh, Foods produced with specific types of bacteria, beneficial bacteria, that secrete lactic acid, which is a preservative, and also gives them their sour flavor. So – Koji itself is different from those in terms of the type of life form and organism it is. It is not a bacteria, it's a mold. So in the grand scheme of things, it's more closely related to a penny bun or a chanterelle than it is the single-celled bacteria that make these other types of pickles.
0: Given that it is different in the way that you both described, does that mean that working with Koji is... Is more difficult so for example I'm imagining if it was me at home wanting to to get into this style of fermentation if I was a complete novice would you suggest that I started with something that was lacto ferment rather than um a koji or is it just that it's different
2: I I think it's, it really boils down to that. It's just different. And what you have to keep in mind is, you know, a lot of people have, when they hear the word mold or even they hear the word bacteria in association with food, a lot of people have this mental block up. That's like, uh, I've been told for so long that all these things are bad in my food, right? Things like E. coli, salmonella can make me sick. And those are bacteria. We have to understand that there's these beneficials and there's these pathogens. And and we work with the beneficials, these ones that transform our food in delicious ways and are also good for our health, very much so. At various um, Our body systems, various different ones rely on these. So that's the first hurdle that people have to overcome is that you're going to be okay making these foods. And we do address this, you know, being in the proper mindset in the book and discussing this. And The other thing to keep in mind is that at this point, people with way less understanding of technology and science and way less access to the resources we have, including things like refrigeration and clean water, have been doing this for thousands of years, and they've been doing it successfully. So if those people with less understanding and less resources could do this— for this long, this amount of time, your listeners are going to have no problem jumping in wherever they want to, wherever they're curious. So they shouldn't hesitate to think, oh, maybe I should make a couple batches of sauerkraut before I try making a couple batches of of koji uh, to make some soy sauce or miso or any of these other applications. Just jump in. Keep in mind too – You know, your first go round, just like the first time you've cooked a whole chicken, maybe it came out a little dry. Maybe it was undercooked a little bit. You're not going to be perfect your first go round. It's just like any skill set you develop. Through your life, mm. you have to do it a few times to get comfortable with it. So, you know, your first batch, your first go, it uh, it may be a quote unquote failure, mm. but within that, you're going to then understand that with your unique setup in your home and the materials that you're using, the equipment that you're using, you're going to be able to fine tune your approach, and within another batch or so you're going to be just as good as if he had been doing this for years at that point.
0: This is something that we spoke about with Sandor Katz on the episode that I recorded with him last year, is that there is this kind of fear, but you're you're absolutely right. First of all, you're never going to be perfect at something the first time you do it. And secondly, people have been doing this for a very long time. So it's just about getting stuck in, isn't it?
2: And that's exactly it. It's it's just about anything. I mean, think about the computer programmer, or you know, the med student. Think of how many years they have to study and repeatedly do the same thing before they are uh, a quote unquote master of their craft. You know, so uh, you're going to have a couple failures at first, but don't let that dissuade you. Just just keep at it. And the great thing is the materials for making Koji uh, whether you're using rice or soybeans or any other type of starch or protein and the spores themselves which you have to source to grow they are very cheap here in the US I'm not sure what the the conversion is but you know rice is roughly 75 cents to a dollar a pound depending on the variety and Koji spores, a roughly 40 gram packet of spores will run you here in the US about 40 US. So you're looking at a dollar a gram and that 40 gram packet is enough to grow several hundred kilos of koji wow okay (laughs) so you know from that standpoint too if you're you're thinking about oh i'm gonna invest some of this specialized stuff in here and invest a little bit of money things are very inexpensive so it's okay to have a couple of failures before you start with your successes
0: so you've got your rice you've got your koji spores which presumably you can source online what other equipment do do we need in our own kitchens so
1: the the so that's funny you should mention that because I was going to talk about the the next challenge for people in terms of the context of growing Koji is that Koji grows in a humid and slightly warm environment such that it can grow prolifically. And one of the things that people are often sort of stuck by is being able to create this condition. One of the things that we often talk about is that people are obsessed with um, baking sourdough or you know, just bread baking in general at home. And people often create this slightly warm condition around, you know, on the order of around 30 C, uh, high humidity to proof bread. You'll um, set a condition where you you put, you know, your dough in a warm spot with it covered, such that it creates this humid condition. So the yeast will prol- prolifically grow. So you all you have to do, aside from creating that condition over, you know, hours, is that you have to be able to create the condition over somewhere around 24 to 36 hours. So the easiest way that is possible is that, you know, you could use just a cardboard box and just some level of insulation and some, heat, you know, some heat just from, you know, putting some a tray of steaming hot water or use your oven to be able to do this. Um, we often recommend, you know, different options like people have dehydrators or you have a cooler, you know, just an ice chest that you take to the beach that you can put some warm water in the bottom and then set some trays above it. So there are all these methods that you can easily search online as well as, you know, methods that are in a book that create this humid condition such that you don't have to worry about it. Even if you find, um, you know, even if you're in your furnace area where it's, you know, the heat is on in the winter time and you find a spot where you can set a tray and just put a cover over the tray before the rice bed to grow mold, it's all you need to do. So it's as simple as a condition of proofing bread that's extended over a longer period of time. And there are multiple ways of getting there. Uh, without too much work
0: so actually where i said you could presumably buy your spores online that's completely wrong and you know here in the uk we have airing cupboards where our boiler is our hot water boiler so i can imagine people kind of getting rid of their towels and putting these trays in (laughs) instead Um, that would be a perfect spot i think
1: yes that would be a perfect spot to grow all you need to do is just take something that you can bring over to read the temperature. These IR, IR thermometer guns are great where you can just, you know, shoot a specific spot or, you know, you just take a tray of water and then you put it somewhere and you take the temperature over the period of time that you're using it. Or, you know, there's, you know, there's just a radiator in your house where you can, you, where it's consistently putting out heat and you can just put a tray just above it where it's nice and toasty warm.
2: And, you know, for um, Alex, for listeners in the UK, there's a wonderful culinarian and chef. Her name is Jackie Bailey. Uh, she has a company called Umami Chef. She has various Koji products available. So people in the UK can directly source via her and know they're getting really, really high quality starters uh, and other products. And, and so it, it is in, in your backyard right there,
1: too.
0: Amazing. Okay, well, I'll make sure that I put a link to that on the show notes. So I wanted to talk about the book, actually, and we've kind of skipped around a little bit, but I wanted to find out kind of at what point did you decide together that you were going to write this book?
1: Um, So I think it was just um, sort of a matter of time when we were, you know, sort of exchanging these ideas A lot of the community was asking us questions about how these things were done we were posting things you know you know in sort of a scattered way and we needed sort of a, you know to to collate everything such that there was a central source and it was just a matter of you know having this conversation and say we we just sort of built up this level of information and and people that we knew that had um, a level of experience that we wanted to share in a cohesive way. And it just made sense for us to write a book. And we just, I don't remember who exactly said, let's do it. And it was just from there on, we just ran with it and went through the entire experience and, um, and ended up with something that was really beautiful and something that we care about. And, that was supported by an entire community. Yeah,
2: I, I think initially, too, we had uh, discussed maybe we should do a website that we could update and, you know, keep people apprised. And when it came down to the day to day maintenance of that sort of thing and online forums and and, and whatnot, um, it became more and more clear that a book would be Uh, the way for us to go.
0: And what was the process like, especially given that you're quite, you live quite far apart. Were you meeting up regularly or were you doing this online or how did it work when you were actually putting the book together?
2: Well, we talk to each other more than we speak to our wives. (laughs) (laughs) That's first and foremost. (laughs) Yeah. You you know, it it, um, definitely Kind of coming back to what we were talking about earlier and and the internet being this great place for connectivity and, and interacting, um, it didn't really matter that we live 500 miles apart from each other. We could actively pull up a document on the computer and both be working in it in real time and see what each other was doing. Each one of us is a little stronger in some areas of the different applied techniques for using koji in various aspects of fermentation. Uh, you know, so for instance, uh, Rich with his engineering mind uh, was more adapt to really focusing on the chapter of like equipment setup and how things grow and how they look and that sort of thing. Um, whereas me with being a charcuterie maker, you know, that chapter was was more of my focus. So we were able to kind of say, okay, you work on this, I'll work on that and then we'll flip it back to each other. Each one of us can fine tune the work, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, it is it is a it's a very intense process. It's a lengthy process. Um, anybody that's listening that is a writer or has written a book or even even uh, an article knows that you know between you and your editor, and and if you have co writers, there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of fine tuning, and and things just take time. Especially with me, because I only type with like two fingers on each hand. Whereas Rich is a proper typer. Um, you know, he can he can bang out things much quicker than, than myself. So, you know, you always have have those technicalities to to kind of look at too. But it's a very involved and very lengthy process.
1: Yeah. And I, I think well, the wonderful thing about it was at, at the early stages, we just decided that each other would do – we would do every other chapter – Uh, And then develop, you know, the language for it and sort of, you know, understand how it was all going to fit together. Because one Mm, of the things that mm. was difficult about it was, you know, we had all this information. We wanted to present it in a way that was not a cookbook, but more of a book of, you know, understanding and, you know, the, you know, the why's behind the how's and to equip people with basic understanding. So they had building blocks To be able to create whatever it is that they wanted, because we didn't want to limit people to just doing the things that we understand how to do or the recipes that we make. The beauty of Koji is that you can use whatever is in your locale or whatever you enjoy as food Mm -hmm. and make your food taste better and make ferments that you understand where the products came from. You know you know the farmers that you got the soybeans or whatever beans or whatever vegetables that you want to make pickles with and that's that's the beauty of it to us is that you can create something that is whole like totally yours and you have full ownership over it no matter what you know you believe about you know certain practices or or ethics of food it's yours and you have this sort of love of what you enjoy to eat Mm -hmm. and we just wanted to extend that to be able to empower people to do this on their own and that was one of the things that was really held close to our hearts when we wrote this book is that you have the power to make your own food more delicious and appreciate what it takes to make it
2: that rich i mean that's so beautiful there and that that's that's the essence of how we feel everybody worldwide should be able to enjoy, enjoy food i mean growing your own food producing your own food in our opinion, is the ultimate act of individual sovereignty. We feel that this is a tenet of the inalienable rights that any human is granted as a human right. So, being able to do that gives you so much power, gives you so much individualism, and so much control over your destiny, your future, your health, your family, everything around you, that we really wanted to be able to hammer that home for people.
0: Yeah. I really like that and I think it's um it's clear because you know koji is is used for soy and mirin and kind of these these japanese things but actually what you're what you're doing is taking that beyond the kind of traditions and 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 allowing people to understand how they can best apply it to whatever they want and I really like that it's quite an empowering approach isn't it rather than it just being a, a book that's just like recipe a recipe b recipe c running all the way through it sounds great well thank you
1: yeah and if you can also think about it in the context of all the types of beer uh within europe based on just you know some barley water and yeast and all the mm-hmm. delicious variations you can think of koji in that way of how that would spread across the how that that is spreading across the world And how it is so versatile and it goes beyond just an alcohol, you know, an alcoholic drink. Mm -hmm. It it encompasses all foods that you can potentially use this as a seasoning um, or an enhancement or, you know, all of these things that, you know, there are no limitations in terms of what you can do with Koji with whatever type of food you want to apply it to.
0: So with that in mind, uh, what's the most unusual way that you've used Koji? I assume that both of you are always kind of experimenting and trying new things.
2: Yeah, I I think so. I think that's relative, right? Because uh, something that an individual does per se becomes normalized and naturalized for them. So context of, of weirdness um, for me, it's just another day on the job, <laughs> but, um, y- you know, some of the things that when we serve it to a customer or someone buys a bottle or something at the, at the restaurant at Larder, um, they, you know, eyebrows are raised and, and, um, you know, interest is peaked. Uh, I, I think some of the things that we make with fish eggs, um, where we'll make something akin to a miso, an amino paste, um, out of the soft roe, so the sperm sacs and the the roe of fish. Uh, we make condiments that are very similar to miso, um, but that you would use in any recipe that calls for fish sauce or anchovy or botarga. <clears throat> Some of those are are on the more esoteric end. Uh, we've also done various uh preserved fermented sauces there's a sauce out of uh china called xo sauce uh which is just one of the world's premier sauces and and flavorings and and it was always designed to be uh, very rich and opulent and use lots of different types of dried seafood and whatnot and Mm. uh, one of the ones that we make here we use the cicada bug um which comes out cyclically every few years here and and uh, we use that and we mix it with koji and and wild mushrooms and uh, all sorts of dried lake fish and, and charcuterie and it, it creates something that's that's mind-blowing fantastic you, you eat it and you're like i can't believe this is an insect that i'm eating <laughs> you know it, uh, what's registered in the mind doesn't translate on the palate um, it doesn't taste like bugs per se. So, so those would be definitely two examples of, of the more, um, I guess, just uh, crazy ingredient-based things that we do.
0: Well, I, I definitely would give it a try. And Rich, what about you?
1: Um, I think um, one of the more striking things that I've talked about in terms of you know, making sort of shio koji, which is just being able to take uh, koji Um, and equal parts of koji and water and add a percentage of salt. Uh, I usually use 5% because it's one of those levels that will allow it to be manageable. Also, you can keep it on your counter without, you know, too much fermentation happening. But I've been sort of adding, you know, different protein powders to be able to accentuate the shio koji because shio koji is typically used to be able to apply it to a cut of protein, whether it be you know, sort of a filet of fish or a steak, um, or, you know, you can rub it on a chicken or even put it on a block of tofu or a little bit of tempeh if you're, you know, if you're vegan and you're, you're ascribing by not eating animals. But if you add sort of these high highly protein-based powders, you can create these amazing umami flavors that are, are very striking. And one of the things that I've added is protein hemp powder. And when you add that particular powder, it creates these seaweed notes that are amazing over the course of after it's been sitting on your counter for a week. And then the other things you can just do are add things that you normally would find uh, very pleasing. Uh, So one of the really great things about not adding salt to this sort of mix that I'm talking about is that you can take one part koji, one part of um, a cooked starch and typically, you know, traditionally it would be just some uh, cooked rice and one part water or two parts water. And you can just let that ferment on your counter to create this delicious sugary drink. Uh, So sort of a proto sake, Uh, that's why it's called amazake. So just, um, you know, some of this sweet sake. And what you can do is you can just take that, instead of using water, you can add a liquid and over time, you know, with people and their understanding of koji and the aromas, one of the aromas is grapefruit when you grow it. So I decided to add grapefruit juice. And that makes sort of the most amazing flavor over the course of time that just is sort of mind blowing in the way that if you can imagine, if you have never tasted koji before, if you can imagine a sweet sake with, you know, this sort of floral citrusy, really, you know, with a slight bitterness, um, complements with Campari really well is that you can just blend it and, uh, you know, and, and put it in your ice cream maker and make a sorbet out of it or just or freeze it and scrape it and just make it a granita. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to have this sort of sweetener that you've created naturally through the conversion of microbes instead of, you know, going out to buy some processed sugar that you have no idea where it's, where it's come from. And, has gone through a lot of industrial processing and has basically no flavor.
2: Rich, I think you'd be amiss if you didn't talk about your cookie
1: dough miso. <laughs> oh, that sounds great. So the cookie, the cookie dough miso is just one of those things that over time that I just sort of, had, was, you know, I when I first started making miso, all I did was I looked at nutritional facts of labels to understand what the constituents were, whether it be carbohydrates, fats, and sugars, uh, to be able to understand, okay, what could I use that was sort of close to the, the profile of soybeans? Mm. Um, and then, you know, there were these contexts of people being like, you know, just understanding, like, uh, I don't know if this is going to work, but it was just a matter of, okay, you just have some, you've just made some cookies and you have a bunch of cookie dough, mm-hmm. extra cookie dough hanging around because you were going to freeze it or you're waiting to batch for it later. I just add it to some some koji and let it hang out for, you know, a couple months. And what's interesting is that it creates this umami background to it and this level of, you know, fermentation, you know, tartness and this complexity that you wouldn't get otherwise. And you can just use it in making your baked goods to enhance it with that, that specific flavor. So we often talk about Being able to use koji to create flavors from inherent ingredients. So that's what pretty much happens when you take shio koji and you apply it to a piece of protein, is that you're inherently taking the proteins of that product and breaking them down and making that product more delicious. So ultimately, you make it more delicious than itself through itself. (laughs) So if you can have a cookie dough miso to to add as a salt plus umami agent, to a cookie that you're making, that's a pretty amazing thing too. Why wouldn't you? Yeah, of course. So there are these things that we play with that are just totally you know off the wall, but it's based on this you know this level of experimentation that you do all the time, right? You don't say you know you're looking for some capers to make a specific fish dish, but you don't have them, but you have some leftover um, brine from some dill pickles. So use that to flash off your pan instead of the capers. Mm. And it it ends up being, you know, a little different, but it's along those same lines of needing something that has acidity and this little level of briny complexity that you can interchange. And these are the things that you can do with things that you already like. But there are these things that you can do with stuff that you just have hanging around and You're like, I don't know what to do with this. Okay, let's try it.
0: Why wouldn't you? It sounds great. It's just the idea of kind of elevating things that you're... And actually, I think your both of your descriptions there have kind of re- removed some of that scariness that people might have. Because actually, you're not doing anything really too scary. What you're actually doing is enhancing the stuff that you like. I really like that.
2: And and that's the that's the basic tenet of it. If you apply it to a steak, to some beef, that... Beef is going to be the beefiest, most delicious beef flavor you're going to encounter. Um, And the same for chicken or fish or vegetables even – um, it's going to make things taste like the best version of themselves. And that's that's what's so fantastic about it. And, and this is one of the reasons we chose the title Koji Alchemy, because as much as you can dig into the science and the chemistry and the physics of what's happening with these enzymes and the mold growing and everything, when it comes down to it, you take something like the shio koji or miso or soy sauce and you apply it to you know, some sort of protein or some sort of starch and you get something that tastes better than you thought it did taste. It's, it's just mind blow- blowing. Um, it's, it's alchemical in, in a lot of, uh,
0: in a lot of respects. Koji magic. That's what I'd have called it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is magical for sure.
0: So I've got a couple of questions from uh, some of my listeners, um, I, I put posted out on social media last week that I was going to be chatting with you. And, and actually, here are three listeners who really know their stuff. So one of my listeners, Leah Kelly, asks if you can explain about the different grades of soy sauce. As here in the West, I think we only really know about light and dark.
2: Yeah. So um, Leah, this is a, a really interesting question because when we say soy sauce, what you have to keep in mind is South Korea, North Korea, all the different regional cuisines of China, the ones of Japan, of uh, Laos, Cambodia, the Philippines, Vietnam, all of these countries, each one of them has various cuisines within each country. And within each of these individual cuisines, they all have their own styles of soy sauce. So. As far as the export market goes, light and dark has been the easiest for people to market soy sauces to the West. Because if you were to explain, oh, this one soy sauce is the exact one that they make in this provincial region of China or this prefecture in Japan, um, then it gets really confusing. Because then we're like, well, it's soy sauce, but... Why is it different? What, what has been um, put into it that differentiates it from another one? So generally speaking, the light and the dark are kind of the easiest way to simplify it for a marketing audience. And when it comes down to it too, those terms are significant because a light soy sauce is not aged as long as a dark soy sauce is. Um, the dark soy sauces are aged quite a bit longer, which is also why they are saltier. Um, the more salt the food has in it, the longer it'll typically age. And we're talking, um, uh, years in some cases for some of these, especially some of the artisan ones, five years or even longer in some cases for, for some highly stylized ones. So, you know, Each one too has its own specific uses within the given uh, cuisine and culture that it comes from for specific foods that are produced with very specific ingredients in specific times and places. So what what this whole conversation, this question boils down to for you if you're going to source soy sauce is buy a bunch of different ones, taste them and go with the ones you like. And go with the ones you think will be easiest for you to work with in a, v- a wide variety of dishes in your kitchen, because of this infinite complexity in uh, these soy sauces. And this applies to the amino pastes also, the misos, the gochujangs, the jangs. Like any any of these these uh, pastes also have have that level of complexity based on. Who's making them and with what ingredients? So uh, it's really about finding something that you enjoy and going with it. Rich, do you have anything to add?
1: Yeah, I, I think I think generally for when you're talking about soy sauce in a Chinese context, basically, you know, when we're talking about light, it's the liquid that's you know either the first press or there may be a context when you're double fermenting with. So you'll take the first-pressed soy sauce, then you'll add some more basically koji medium to be able to create a double ferment with soy sauce instead of your base water. Uh, And then when you're talking about dark, yes, it's it's aged. um, But in some contexts, when they have dark soy sauces, you also add a level of sugar. And for Chinese soy sauces, for the most part traditionally, what you're looking at is that it's just using uh, soybeans to create the soy sauce. And when we branch off into the other context of being able to create shoyu in a Japanese context, it's soybeans and toasted cracked wheat equal parts. And then when we talk about making a Korean ganjang, we're talking about a soybean mash that's, uh, that's put into a brick and it's grown, um, you know, hung and grown as a, as a sort of in the koji context. But that, uh, but that's specifically called meiju. And that is put into a once that's complete, it's put into a salt brine. And then the liquid from that is uh, is your ganjang, which is the equivalent of soy sauce or shoyu in those contexts. So as Jeremy was saying, there is this regionality of approaches that you um, that you go through to be able to achieve these things. And it's a matter of context of where these locales are. And I totally agree is that what you can do is just go to your local you know asian market um look on the shelf and look at some ingredients and understand that they're 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 made with these very simple ingredients um and try to avoid the ones that have you know chemicals added uh like hydrolyzed vegetable proteins um you know you just stay away from those things and understand what those contexts are once you have a name for it uh, and you like what you're you're tasting you could go ahead and make it on your own through understanding more about that
0: very specific one. Great. Thank you. Hopefully that answers.
2: Rich. And I, and I think that's the important thing too, because, um, just like with olive oil, right. Uh, you want good Italian olive oil. It doesn't leave Italy. Um, and if it does, it's, it's almost prohibitively expensive. Um, you know, so, so, other countries kind of get, I, I don't know if we want to say the dredges, but, um, you know, something of a lesser quality than, than it's being kept for the home population, um, which in that respect, you're going to find a lot of soy sauces that have additives and preservatives and this sort of thing in them uh, because they're industrially produced for mass markets. And this is where making your own comes into play because you have complete control and If you have a bean that is local to you, is maybe an heirloom in your family or your community somewhere in England, you don't have to use soybeans to make it. You can use that bean and you can put the identity of you and your family and your community onto that individual product and keep it as pure as you would like.
0: That rolls so perfectly into my next listener question uh, from KV Favel. She asks, "I have come across miso made from soybeans, barley, and rice. Are other cereal grains and other beans ever used at all? If not, even if not traditionally, what about these days when people are trying out new variations of ancient foods?"
1: Uh, yeah. So, so I. I mean, pretty much everybody in the community who has experience has grown Koji on uh, every grain or seed starch available that you could put your hands on. Uh, And it's a matter of just managing how it's cooked and the moisture level content to be able to grow the Koji on. So what I would suggest is to reference our book because we have uh, these processes that leverage the origins of these techniques to be able to Create a starch bed that is um, easier to work with and gives you sort of back, enough background to to make you successful faster. But it comes down to managing the moisture level such that the mold will grow prolifically throughout the starch, with it being wet enough for the starch to grow and and, and not not too dry. And it's, it's sort of this you know in between balance where. Uh, you create this bed structure that is so sort of like uh, conducive to the the mold growing and and being able to consume the starch and create the enzymes.
2: Yeah, one of one of my you know the the. Question asked about you know a mixture of rice and barley and beans and this sort of thing and um, I often one of my go tos is um, we get these great northern beans where I live and uh, koji grows just as well on those as it does soy and I often make an amino paste something akin to uh, miso just from those beans and salt literally I grow the mold on the bean itself and then mix it with salt and then let it age. So anything can be used. I mean, uh, we even detail in the book of making amino paste, these miso like products out of bacon oh,
0: wow! <laughs> or,
2: you know, fish eggs as we've discussed, uh, or cookie dough. So, um, you know, it's what you want to look for is, uh, do I have enough protein in a food and do I have enough carbohydrates in a food? And, of the time, the answer is yes, most ingredients inherently have everything you need in them. And now that Koji is being viewed through the cultural lens of people from various parts of the world, we all have access to different indigenous ingredients that we like to work with. So uh, this is why we're now seeing people growing it on, I mean, you name it. And, and making uh, amino paste and amino sauces with things other than soy traditionally. I mean, we make one um, at, at Larder at my restaurant. Uh, we call pastrami essence. Uh, when you make pastrami, you cure the beef first and you use the brisket for it here. You uh, then smoke it with spices on it, and then it finally gets steamed off. So we save that steaming liquid, which is there's quite a amount. There, there's a couple liters with each batch, and we go through, you know, some some cases two batches a day. Uh, we save that. I add a bunch of koji to it and salt, and we make something like shoyu, like soy sauce, but from this pastrami steaming liquid, um, and it's it's very Worcestershire esque. Um, in terms of, of it being a condiment. Um, but you can literally use anything. And that's, that's going back to where we talked about the sovereignty and the individualism and, and, uh, that you can put forth in these foods. It's, it's literally unparalleled. You can do anything that suits your needs
0: that's also kind of zero food waste 101 right there you're literally using even the steam even the liquid from the steam that's impressive
2: yeah yeah and you know in the book we have quite a few sections that that address you know using using the quote unquote food waste cuz it's only waste when we deem it that yes if we if we still hold in in our in our mind that there's intrinsic value in what's left over, right? So from the bones and the mirepoix left over from making a stock, you know, we take that stuff, which normally either gets composted or or trashed. We mix it with koji and we run it through a meat grinder and we end up with something that's an amino paste, like a miso, uh, but it's like instant chicken stock and it's, it's literally bones and mushy vegetables. Um, but. We, we let it sit with the salt on it for a little bit and ferment out and age. And after a few months, we have something that's delicious and we'll we'll rub it on chicken before we roast it. We'll mix it with cream cheese for a, a schmear, a spread to put on toast um, or use it as a base for stock. So yeah, like getting – rate of this concept of food waste is koji has a huge role in that amazing
0: that sounds making me quite hungry actually right the last question i've saved this one to the last um alex war is obviously uh, well into his fermentation and and knows his stuff and i actually had a little look on his instagram and he is he is making soy and um all sorts of things so here's his question can you season slash spice a shoyu during the fermentation process or only during the pasteurization process? Also, what alternative processes are there to flavoring a soy sauce? Um,
1: so, so it comes, I guess it go, comes down to the context of um, what your ultimate purpose is. The, the thing with adding things during, um, a, say, a traditional shoyu or soy sauce process is that you You sort of interrupt what's going on. And it comes down to the question, of, like I always ask this question, are you ultimately creating something that is more delicious by adding ingredients as you go or adding ger- ingredients after the product is finished in as good of a, as solid of a way as you'd like? Um, so there are contexts where you're adding things and it creates these level of flavors that are interesting and, but they also have to survive that level of going over the process of time. So if we're talking about saying adding some fresh herbs, it sort of doesn't make sense to add that to the process of making shoyu or miso, but it does make sense at the end of the t- at the end of the time. So one of the things that I recently played out played around with, if you talk about things that survive over time and understanding of umami and creating flavors that I added some seaweed to a uh, uh, soy sauce slash so show you what I was making because I wanted to be able to get this enhanced flavor over a shorter period of time than waiting the entire year to get a great soy sauce. And you can sort of think about it in the context of the short term application versus the long term application. We talked about the application of shiokoji uh, on, you know, pieces of protein to enhance that short term flavor. But one of the things that's really interesting is that you can create these sort of flavors that are along the way that are sort of a hybrid of using a koji application, which is a short-term marinade versus your long-term shoyu or soy sauce. So there are these bridges where you can use things as they go. And I kind of see that as the context of, you know, when folks were using this as preservation, um, when they were for survival, is that you would make something at the end of harvest. So at the end of harvest, um, just before winter time, you would stockpile all of these things that you've made. But maybe you didn't have something that was held over time, and then you would just sort of take it out after a couple months, and that would be your, you know, your short-term uh, miso, say, or your short-term soy sauce that had this level of tartness from lactic acid fermentation, plus like the sweetness that you would use early in the season because you, you didn't have those ingredients available. And then you would wait a little bit long. So you would continually harvest from this sort of batch of ferment as you go. And I think that's sort of the context that you wanna take it is that if you're adding an ingredient, what you might wanna do is say you have this huge batch, maybe I'll take, um, you know, um, say a 10th of it and I'll make this experiment and I'll, I'll, I'll divvy it up into different durations and understand what adding that ingredient means.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because the context of, you know, sort of the old traditional things are to be very repetitive and per- production-based and sort of like well understood that they're going to create a very specific product. But now once you start playing with that process, there's not a whole lot of documentation in terms of how it's going to turn out. So being able to experiment on your own and play with it And just being able to say you have this short term soy sauce, right? And you just blend it with this ingredient you like and immediately it tastes better versus waiting, you know, a couple months on it without even knowing what's going to happen. And then maybe it doesn't even taste good at all.
0: And it could be a disaster. Yeah.
1: Right. So there are a lot of contexts where you can say that ultimately I can just take some miso and some butter and some herbs and make something super delicious i at the point of when I have all these ingredients at their peak. And that's very, you know, that's that's pretty much the understanding of, you know, utilizing things for cooking. And you should extend that into your understanding of how to make ferments, because the long term stuff may not work out. So just try and see what happens. But that doesn't mean that what you have as an idea can't be immediately delicious. And I think that's sometimes what people lose in the context of making ferments is that. Oh, I have to do the whole process to make it delicious. No, you can just take a piece of what you've already done, add to it, and then it's already tasty. So so why do more work or put in the risk if you don't have to without the understanding, but you can still in parallel create that understanding?
2: Which I think it's important to note too is um, while you have an idea of your intended use of this soy sauce or this amino sauce that you're making while you're making it, when it comes down to it, um, if it is highly spiced and seasoned, you may limit the scope of what you can use it in in a final dish Uh, because the things you spiced or seasoned it with may not go with something that you one day decide you want to use it with. And the other thing, too, you need to note is the complexity of the final use. If you are making something like a crudo or a tartare, right, out of seafood, and you've designed this amino sauce to have citrusy notes in it, you put some citrus peel in there and maybe some bergamot or that sort of thing, and you're just putting it over some raw scallops or some diced raw fish – and you can taste all those ingredients because your, your, your final dish is very straightforward, that's great. But if you're making a stew uh, or a soup, or let's say you're making a shepherd's pie, right? And you're making your meat filling, and you're, you're, you're tasting it, and you're like, mm, this needs just that little boost of something. It needs that level of richness or that just extra bit of complexity to it. And you add some of the, the sauce to it, those nuances that you put in that citrus peel that bergamot it's going to be lost in into that yeah well it might clash if you put enough of it but the amount you're going to be using it's going to be lost because there's you've got your carrots in there and your rutabaga and your your lamb and and you know all these other ingredients that you put in that are all very strongly flavored into that that pie filling you're going to lose the nuance of that citrus and that bergamot in um, in that sauce you made. So, kind of like as Rich was saying, keep things simple, keep them basic. And then, as you're going and creating and using these products in your cooking, then you can add those layers of complexity um, uh, as you like using peak fresh ingredients.
0: It sounds good to me. I feel like I need to have a go at doing this myself. So, I'm gonna get my hands on a copy of this book and. Uh get going i feel like um this is a good probably quite a good winter activity as well when when the weather's a bit rubbish out and you you're in your kitchen experimenting and wanting to do something a bit different
2: yeah whether it's winter or it's covid lockdown um,
0: well yeah on that
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it 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 makes for a good time all around
0: so we have been chatting for ages (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I just realised um, an hour and twenty. So we, um, we
2: warned you, Alex. You
0: did. You did warn <laughs> me. So I think that we should probably wrap it up. It's been absolutely fab and fascinating. It's really, really clear that you both love this and have so much kind of expertise as well Uh, and i really hope that some of our listeners might be inspired to to go out and buy the book and and have a bash at making some of this amazing stuff with koji themselves so yeah thank you both so much for joining me
1: our pleasure
0: you're very welcome
1: you're welcome it was so much fun